So I've got two numbers for you. Um, we're in a series called Practicing the Presence, and each week we're looking at spiritual practice that helps us to live the way of Jesus um, in, in, in a becoming a non-anxious presence in the world. Um, I've got two numbers for you, 1440. Anyone know what happened in 1440 that changed the world? It's a year. Anyone know? 1440 in, in Germany, 1440, um, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. That was when the printing press was invented, which started a printing revolution that ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation, which led to the Enlightenment, which led to the world as we know it today. 2007, anyone know what happened in 2007? Changed the world? Apologists say of a similar scale. It was in California in 2007, Steve Jobs announced the invention of the iPhone, which kick-started the smartphone revolution that ultimately led to things like apps, and social networks, um, industries that emerged out of that, whole industries, multi-million, multi-billion pound industries, ultimately going on to shape how we view, distribute, consume news, um, and distribution of information in our world. Um, that one's a bit younger, it's just over 10 years old. Um, we don't quite know the, the effects, but we're figuring it out slowly. Um, both technical, technological revolutions that, um, although different, have fundamental similarities as well. They, they have, I guess, fundamentally changed human society and us as humans, I guess, I would put forward as a thesis this morning. The impact of the printing press has obviously, as I said, been much longer and has been critiqued um, since 1440, the smartphone less so, but ultimately they, they have shaped our communication and sharing of information, how we as human beings spend our time, and maybe more importantly, spend our attention. Hands up in the room right now, honestly, if you don't have a phone on you, hand up. One, two, maybe one or two, but like the vast, vast 90 odd percent of adults in the room, maybe more have a phone on you, yeah, you've got a phone on you. Um, it's just sort of become so uh, pervasive. Um, and we carry these little pocket computers around with us every day, and we have these interesting relationships with our little pocket computers. Um, I don't know if you do, I certainly do. Um, we can become super dependent on them for, for good things as well. They're not all bad, of course. They're actually really great in some ways, but they are changing us, dare I say, maybe even discipling us. Um, the printing press, the smartphone, amazing devices that have transformed our lives, I think for the better in lots of ways. Many, many things are better in the world because of these technologies. I would say the world is a more democratic, these are dem democratizing technologies because of the spread of information. They have not completely leveled the playing field, but they have contributed to more a more level playing field where not just the few in power have the ideas or share the ideas, but we all can share um, ideas, consume news and all the rest of it. But maybe we often maybe don't think, or maybe you do actually, but I'd like to talk about maybe how, how these technologies, particularly the smartphone, the little pocket computer in our pockets actually maybe doesn't serve us all that well. I think 10 years in, if you're like me, you're beginning to suspect perhaps that um, it has its downside with its upside as well. Um, 
there's been an incredible spike in mental illness and anxiety in the world that more and more um, researchers um, really be are beginning to think that that's not really just a correlation with the launch of the smartphone and social networks, but perhaps more a causation. Um, the ca a causation and a correlation between um, the use of smartphones, social networks, social media, and our emotional and spiritual and mental well-being and health. And it's been documented. And I also believe that these devices, these little small pocket computers, have an implication um, and also a challenge for us as those living the way of, or trying to live the way of Jesus. Our attention spans are getting shorter every day. We now live in the attention economy, which is basically this game where companies are making money for our, our eyeballs, our attention. They're monetizing our attention. Um, there's a famous story told of Coca-Cola um, where they, con they considered their number one competitor uh, to be not Pepsi, but to be H2O, to be water. And I've read similar stories where Netflix consider not Apple Plus or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime or whatever, but they actually consider sleep as their number one competitor. Um, they're trying to get more and more of our attention on their services, and not just throwing Netflix down the tube because it's, it's just the game, the attention economy. Um, I love Netflix too, but you get the idea. You know what I'm talking about. I hope you're tracking with me. Um, we've experienced... This 24-7 little buzz in our pocket, you know, distraction, noise, wanting our attention all of the time. And it creates um, an interesting relationship, as I have said. Um, and it's become indispensable to us. There are really a few, very few places that you can really go or be disconnected from your phone. There's, there is the airplane, although I was recently on the airplane to New York and um, they had Wi-Fi on the airplane. So I was like... Um, I was actually disappointed by that. I couldn't switch my phone off. Um, there's the subway. There's the, uh, um, there's the wilderness, I guess. There's the shower, um, if you don't wear some kind of smartwatch that's waterproof. Um, maybe that's the only safe place. Have you seen this mural here, which is a Banksy mural? Have you seen this? Called, it's called the uh, Mobile Lovers. It's a piece of graffiti which shows these two um, people in their work attire who finished work embracing but completely distracted by the ghostly green glow of their smartphones. Um, this is what a, a Microsoft researcher calls um, the continual partial attention. Continual partial attention. And there's a Google philosopher, product philosopher, who left the company because of the, he, he was observing the way that software engineers were actually developing software and apps and services to hack essentially our psychology. And he's left the company and he's actually now working full-time lobbying government to call software developers to take some kind of Hippocratic oath for the well-being of humanity, which is an amazing calling. But um, I've been reading a book um, by a, a pastor called John Mark Comer, and he says this, right, that your phone doesn't um, work for you. Like, you, you bought it, we bought it. I bought my phone. It doesn't work for you, though. It works for someone else. It works for the companies in Silicon Valley and around the world that are using the data um, to monetize our attention. And at what cost, I guess, is the question. Um, Nicholas Carr wrote a famous um, article in the Atlanta called, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And it led to a book called The Shallows, in which he listed a battalion of neurological studies that made the case, basically, um, that un unless we become aware of the effects of, our, of digital media on our brains, we risk underdeveloping and even, lose, and even losing certain cognitive capacities. 
deep reading, long-term memory, contemplation, and ultimately what we might call wisdom are all in jeopardy. The brain's normal plasticity, he argues, can work for us and against us. If we predominantly do cursory speed reading online on our devices, we may become a people adept at scanning but deficient at meaningful reflection. At what cost, though, does it go further than that? Perhaps it goes further because all of this attention and disruption and distraction is robbing us with the ability to be present. We're either in the past or the future or somewhere else, but we're not here and now. Present to ourselves, present to others, and present to God. Is this robbing us of our very soul? Another journalist wrote a famous, now famous article, I think it's in the New York Times, called I Used to Be Human. His name is Andrew Sullivan, you should check it out, in which he details his journey in detoxing from digital technology, and he says, there are books to be read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. But this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. He's talking about digital media. They're not the walking and the friends and the books. He's talking about digital media. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have one. A threat to our souls, surely our technologies should be our tools and not our masters, which would put a lie to McLullan's dictum that we make our tools and then they make us. Or at least it would minimize that effect. Our question should be, do our devices, um, busy, noise, distracting, do they detract from what might be our primary vocation in life, which is to love and to serve? I would put forward. In fact, that is the final analysis, the ultimate criterion. I would add to that, do they detract, do they distract in some way from what it means for us to live the way of Jesus in the world, to be that, as we've coined that phrase, that non-anxious presence in a world that is very anxious and exhausted. Do, do, do these devices in our lives, do, does the world that we live in, the age that we sit in, the way that our media operates, the way that our lives are constructed serve us? If you're like me, you've read about this. This is not new. This is where I'd love to do something this morning to think about as followers of Jesus, how we might perhaps um, consider a practice or practices that might help us not lose our souls, or but to actually reflect a little bit more meaningfully about how we might navigate through this kind of world that we live in today. I'd like to do something really crazy. <laughs> um, take out your phones. It's crazy. Ten years ago, you didn't have a phone, so um, the heartbeats in the room are, like, increasing. I'd love you to, um, now, there's exemptions to this. If you're waiting on a really important call or a job offer or something, you need to be contactable, don't do this. But if you're like me and you don't, um, hit the airplane mode. Go on, hit the airplane mode or turn off your phone. Every single person in this room going, just for 30 minutes, 30 minutes, just turn your phone off. And I'm going to invite the welcome team. Karis, Jude, the welcome team. They're going to come around with the buckets. I know, you're, 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 I know some of you will be hating me right now, and I actually don't care. 
please, if you don't want to do this, of course you don't have to, but for, you will get your phone back, we'll not hack it, we'll not do anything with it, the buckets will just sit here at the front. For 30 minutes, I'd love everyone to put their, their phones in the bucket. I don't even know how to turn this off. How do you turn this off? There's <laughs> two buttons to turn your phone off now. Who knew that? Not just one. Yeah, just set them there. Cool. You will get them back. Maybe. <laughs> how are you feeling? How are you feeling, John? How do you feel? That's okay. How are, you, how are you feeling? Fine. Okay. Okay. Is anyone a little bit elevated heart rate or think that I'm a bit crazy? So they're all here? Are they all here? Yeah, they're all here. Jude's got some as well. This is going to be carnage at the end, isn't it, when everyone has to come and get these back? I don't... Yeah, well, you know, you've got to take some risks. Blaise Pascal said this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. It's quite profound, actually. I think it's because we maybe fear, I certainly am with you in this. I am not in any way an expert at this at all. In fact, I need to make some changes to my life. But we fear the, I think we fear the silence um, we, f we dread boredom. It increases our maybe anxiety a little bit, or, or instead we like to choose distraction. We like to have our attention on something, and uh, we can't help but run from uh, some, some of the problems that come into our mind when we sit alone in a room. So we just want to fidget and do something. Some of these phones are actually glowing at me. <laughs> this is a photo of me in 2004 in Syria, and that's the Syrian desert. Um, in an ancient Christian monastery. It was one of the most profound experiences of my life. I think I've shared it here before. Um, it's because I discovered this very thing called the monastic tradition. It was also very profound because of the sheer silence um, and darkness and remoteness of the location. Um, Pete Gregg has got a great book um, uh, called How to Pray. I'd recommend that he talks about silence. And in that, he talks about the desert fathers, the monastic tradition that actually originated in the Egyptian and Syrian deserts. And I want to read a part of this uh, for you to give some context to um, the monastic tradition and to today, some practices that I think um, help us um, as we think about all the stuff we've talked about so far. Um, so bear with me. By the end of the third century, Christianity had grown in spite of brutal persecution from a provincial Jewish sect into the dominant faith in the Roman Empire. And then in the year 312, the unthinkable happened, and Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, although his sincerity is questioned. Roman temples were then converted. Think about this. Roman temples were just converted into churches. Pagan feasts became Christian festivals, and the faith once despised and reviled became socially advantageous. Christians acquired status, and the church acquired power. 
But many Christians were deeply disturbed, recalling the humility and the simplicity of Jesus. They worried that his followers were being corrupted, his gospel diluted, and his holy bride exploited. So refusing to conform, they determined to seek out a simpler, humbler, holier way of life, far from the corrupting centers of power in the Egyptian and Syrian wilderness. They became known as the desert fathers and mothers. At the heart of their spirituality was uh, spiritual warfare, another kind of prayer practice, and an approach to prayer known as hesychasm, which is the Greek for stillness, for rest, for quiet, for silence, like a mystic practice. It was a practice of interior silence and continual prayer. Um, Surprisingly, having fled the world, these men and women now began to change it. Their lives of austerity, militant spirituality, and continual prayer spoke prophetically to a jaded culture of their day. Hundreds of pilgrims sought to learn from the wise insights of people like Anthony of the Desert. It was as if a physician had been given by God to Egypt, said Athanasius, his biographer, for who in grief met Anthony and uh, said this, for who in grief met Anthony and did not return rejoicing? Went out to the desert, I guess, to hang out with Anthony of the desert and return rejoicing. Countercultural communities and economies began to form around these prayer warriors uh, and the first monasteries were born. Um, missionaries began to travel north um, from the Egyptian de deserts carrying the gospel and planting these radical monastic settlements and eventually evangelizing the Celtic peoples of Britain. At least two full centuries before the Roman church actually arrived in Canterbury, the, the, the desert mothers and fathers were already in Britain. Thomas Merton, who himself abandoned a sophisticated life in New York City, to become a Trappist monk, he says of the desert pioneers that they knew that they were helpless to do any good for others as long as they floundered about in the wreckage. Um, but once they got a foothold on solid ground, things were different. Then they had not only the power, but even the obligation to put thy ho the whole world to safety after them. I think it's a, a brilliant little um, summary of that part of Christian history. And that foothold that Thomas Merton talks about is silence, the practice of silence, which is what we're talking about this morning. Silence and solitude. Sit in thy cell, and thy cell will teach thee all. Abba Moses. I think in the 21st century age, we can learn a lot as, as followers of Jesus about that. Uh, we can learn a lot from these mystics, these radical followers of Jesus in the monastic tradition, these desert fathers and mothers. We can learn an awful lot from them. In fact, it might be one of the richest places we can go to help us when we think through ways to navigate this world, particularly as we talk this morning about silence and solitude. It was the foothold that they got that enabled them to be full of life so that they could help the world around them. It enabled them to live a life-giving and be a non-anxious presence in the world. And I believe the same can be for us. The same can be for us. Jesus practiced this and he taught this in his life. In Luke 4, um, well, firstly, we know that Jesus was familiar with the voice of his father. You can read about that in Matthew 3. And his baptism um, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well 
pleased. There was a declaration of love over Jesus the Son at the beginning of his ministry. And throughout his ministry, Jesus continued to retreat to solitary places to be intimate, to practice the presence of God, his Father, in prayer, in silence. And I also imagine, um, as I was reading Pete Gregg said um, about this, um, walk to get up those mountains, you've got to walk up them. So there's some, as he calls it, kinetic meditation happening. It doesn't have to be sitting in a room. You could be out walking and having blood thrown through your veins. Um, but it was time apart. It was time apart in some kind of silence and solitude. And it was a practice so that he could return to the demands of people that wanted something from him. And so he retreated for prayer. Um, Luke 4:42. at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. And then Jesus, of course, doesn't just practice it, but he teaches it in Matthew 6, verse 6. He says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. There's a kind of solitary prayer with the Father, a time with the Father. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament talks about a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak. And our lives are so noisy and our our inner world also can be so noisy. An Augustinian monk describes it memorably as an inner chaos that can go on inside and in our heads, like a wild cocktail party of which we find ourselves the embarrassed host, like the mental chatter and the stuff that comes up when we do find a moment. We all have that. It's not easy. But as Pete Gregg says, he cannot, empath he cannot emphasize too strongly how important and actually I've read so many on this. Rohr, Dallas Willard, Henry Nowen, Thomas Merton, and I mean, Pete Gregg's referencing a lot of these as well. They all, Richard Foster, they all talk about silence and solitude as the most important practice of prayer in the life of a Jesus follower. He says, I cannot emphasize too strongly how important it is for your spiritual, mental, and physical well-being that you learn to silence the world's relentless chatter for a few minutes every day, to be still in the depths of your soul. You must seek it as if your life depends on it, because in a way, it does. And science actually backs some of this up, because when we're stressed, our adrenal glands release the hormone cortisol into our bloodstream, which impairs our capacity for clear thinking and healthy decision-making. But when we sit quietly, the cortisol does subside in our bloodstream and things can become clear. The swirling sediment of life quickly settles and we become more aware of ourselves in place and time we're present. And as followers of Jesus, we know the whisper of the, and the gentleness of God and his presence both in us and around us when we do that as well. There's a story in the Old Testament that I think really helps sum this up. And it's with the Old Testament prophet Elijah um, in 1 Kings 19. And God appears to Elijah and he had been suicidal and depressive and had flew from his encounter with Jezebel. 
And God told him to stand and wait for the presence of the Lord to pass by. And it says this in 1 first, um, first Kings 19, verse 11. The Lord said, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. So God didn't appear to Elijah in the ways that he had in the past. He didn't appear like a wind, like he did to Job. He didn't appear like an earthquake, like in Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments, or like fire in the burning bush to Moses. We read that God revealed himself in a gentle whisper, but that actually isn't an accurate translation. What the actual translation in Hebrew should say is a, the sound of sheer silence. Not a gentle whisper. English translators struggle to translate that because I guess it's difficult to translate silence. So they put in still small voice, they put in gentle whisper, but really it's not the original Hebraic intent of the text. The real intent there is God came to Elijah in the sound of sheer silence. I love what Frederick Buchner, who's a beautiful writer, says. Before the gospel is a word, and the word it is silence. It is the silence of our own lives. It is life with the sound turned off so that for a moment or two you can experience it, not in terms of the words that make it bearable, by but for the utterable mystery that it is. Let him say, be silent and know that I am God. Be silent and know that even my silence and absence I am known. That's the, the scripture from Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. This is throughout our story throughout the scriptural narrative, this practice of getting alone with the divine, with God, and practicing silence and quieting ourselves to be able to hear what God might say. And though it can be a struggle for us, waiting for God in the midst of silence ushers us into his restful presence. For Elijah, this was true, and for us, that after this, the silence, after the chaos, just is so abounding with the presence of God. The silence after the chaos abounds with the presence of God. As I said before, Dallas Willard calls silence and solitude the two most radical disciplines or practices of the Christian life. Similarly, Henry Nouwen wrote that without solitude, it is almost impossible to live a spiritual life. In solitude, we separate ourselves from people and things in order to attend to God. In silence, we quiet every inner and outer voice to hear God's sheer silence. Silence and solitude are probably the most challenging practices for, for many of us because we fear it. But it is a practice that leads to encounter with the presence of God and can cultivate a depth of spiritual life and anchor our souls in a toxic culture which is so constant and busy and distracting and wearying and ultimately dehumanizing us in the process. 
object. I can hear some objections in the room. I have some in my head going on too, you know. This is, uh, I don't have the time to sit and be silent. I've got too much, too much going on, so much to do. And I, we followers of Jesus, we Christians, we should be out making a difference in the world. We should be out there making a difference, serving the poor, fighting for justice, to spend time like monks in a monastery, to spend time in our closet praying, to go out prayer walking, to do whatever we would do to try and instill this kind of practice is a luxury at best and a waste of time at worst. I can hear those objections in my own, in my own head. I guess I have one answer, two answers. One, Jesus. <laughs> We've talked about Jesus already. He teaches about it and practices it. It's pretty clear if we look at the Gospels. I also think that we could point to another example too, though it's the, the example of Mother Teresa. She's one of the most um, well-known great examples of a, of a Jesus follower in the 20th century. Mother Teresa, as you know, I'm sure served some of the poorest people in the world. Um, spent many years in Calcutta. She founded the Missionaries of Charity and that organization to serve those in great need. And um, it's funny how, like, sometimes we split the Christian life into, like, different segments. I really do believe that the Christian life is like a both and. So it's sort of like, we do need community and we need silence. We do need the king and the kingdom. We do need, like, we do need, like, being with God and living for God, like doing the works of God. We, we do need like worship and justice. It's not, and sometimes we can find our identity and camp out in one or the other. I think Mother Teresa is a beautiful example of someone who blends the both and of what I think a holistic life following Jesus looks like because she, she had a deep contemplative life, but she was an incredible activist as well. She was a very active woman who met the needs of many around her and had great demands on her life. But she had um, five times a day she would stop for prayer. And she would go to Mass and she would pray and she would practice silence. And having read some of the accounts, um, I mean, these were quiet and undramatic, um, not reported in the news <laughs> parts of her life mundane, but she was resting in the presence of God, finding some nourishment for her soul. And having read some people who worked with her, having read some people, some people who visited, it seems clear that she didn't pray to survive the work, but that the work flowed out of the prayer. That, that the work was the fruit of her prayers. That the, that the work was the fruit of her time in the presence of God. She led with contemplation, with prayer, with silence, with solitude, with time with the Father, with time with Jesus. And goodness flowed out of her life from that point on. How did she do this? It was simple and undramatic, consistent, small, sacred times that nurture this inner stillness, silence, and solitude. And she said this, Mother Teresa herself said this, God speaks in the silence of the heart. Listening is the beginning of prayer. I think that's why the, these buckets of devices are discipling us 
or anti-discipling us or could discipling us away from the way of Jesus ultimately because if I'm right, if it's, my experience is similar to you, they just fill every nook and cranny of our lives at times. Maybe you don't have this problem and I, I'm, that's wonderful. But I guess unless we begin to think a little bit more about this kind of attention and where we put our attention and how we spend our time and how we engage with the world around us, the noise, and whether we can, like Mother Teresa, find these moments in the queue when we're queuing up in the bank or in the car where we turn the radio off or in the shower where we leave the smartwatch in the bedroom, whatever it may be. Mother Teresa was a great example of the both ends. She blended those two things wonderfully well. Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. The invitation of Jesus to come and to have a leisurely rest in his presence. Here's the, 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 the big idea. I believe, Redeemer, us as a church family, that silence and solitude is one of the most important things that we could do in our lives. Um, and I do believe it can lead to utter transformation and love in our lives, provide an anchor for our souls, helps us navigate this busy world. I believe that the way of Jesus has power for that. I believe like the good witch in the Wizard of Oz saying to Dorothy when she's trying to find her way back to home to Kansas, she says to her, you've always had the power to go back to Kansas. And I really do believe that as we live following Jesus, not only has he given us these practices, but he's given us the gift of his spirit within us. We have within us, if we follow Jesus, the way to navigate this world in a different way where we're not the ones walking, walking frayed and stressed and anxious. We will at times, of course we will. We're human, it's normal. There's no guilt or shame around being stressed or anxious about some of the, the hardest things in our life. But ultimately, in the long game, we have at our disposal ways in which we can cultivate something deeper and truer, a connection with God that will sustain us and, and enable us to live into our primary vocation in life, to love and serve the world, to become more like Christ. Here's some practical steps. I'll end with some practical steps. People, I'm, I'm, my wife's always telling me, you gotta be a bit more practical with your sermons. Give a few practical steps. <laughs> She's right. Here's some practical steps that I completely nicked from Pete Gregg's book, How to Pray. I think they're really, really good. Um, they're very simple. Um, to practicing silence and solitude. Here's the first one, stop talking. <laughs> stop talking. Discipline yourself to not always have to say anything <laughs> or fix anything or text anyone. Begin by separating your identity purely from what you do or how you present yourself because you're more than, than what you do and how you present yourself. Here's a second um, practical tip. It's essentially just start practicing. If you're just starting, just set aside five minutes of every day or a week and try it out. Be prepared because the first time it can actually feel like a week, not five minutes. Find a particular place where you can do this it can be helpful, a place where you can go to do it. And as the day goes on, you will undoubtedly feel the benefit and become more centered in God's presence, more attuned to his voice, that voice like Elijah heard, the sheer silence of, 
of, of the voice of God and more aware of what God might want to actually say to you in your circumstances and emotions. Don't run from the emptiness or the emotions that arise, but ask God to help you process them gently. And as you process them, begin to make those times longer, if you can, and make them a rhythm. Include a quiet day once every term where you can be essentially, intentionally still, alone, and silent. Here's number three, buy an alarm clock. Beth and I, we bought an alarm clock. It's like an old-fashioned alarm clock. You've got to wind it up or put batteries in it or something. Now, has that stopped us from having our phones in the bedroom? No. Um, is there like a rule that we should or shouldn't do that? No, it's different for every person, but we thought we would try this out, and we're still trying. It's actually quite difficult. But actually, this is a tip in this book. Buy an alarm clock and like leave your phone somewhere else in the room and like have sacred time as you begin your day and end your day. I think that's a really practical, small thing that we're trying to do. And in those moments before you go to sleep, you can become aware of God's presence in your life and this peace that he has. And when you wake in the morning, why not try to wait until you've showered or had your coffee or spent time in, in some other type of prayer before you look at your phone? Um, steal back the moments when you're boiling the kettle or popping the toast or driving to work. Embrace the silence. Stop talking. Start practicing. Buy an alarm clock. And here's, here's a helpful one. Leave, leave your device. This is from an, an interesting book for families. Um, I would recommend it. I haven't read it, but I know enough about it. Um, I think it's a solid book by Andy Crouch called The TechWise Family. Um, and it suggests um, a helpful approach to the relationship we have with our devices. Uh, one hour a day, switch off, our, switch off our devices. One hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year. And so just do that, and actually that will help us to practice some kind of stillness, some kind of silence in our lives, some kind of reconnection. Get familiar with airplane mode on your phone. Why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this? I think we can all breathe this morning. We're not to leave this place feeling like shame or guilt. not uh, the, my aim at all this morning. I actually really am preaching to myself this morning. I just really think when you look the world, when you look at secular writers, when you look at science, when you look at the, the story we're part of, the ancient faith, that, that this is a real thing. And it's just another way that we can be faithful followers of Jesus and cultivate an inner peace in our lives as we live and serve the world. So Jeremiah 6 is the verse that I've been using for this series, which says this, stand at the crossroads and look Ask for the ancient paths and where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. So I hope that's helpful. We're doing this in a series because we believe in a sense the Western secular project is crumbling a little bit. It's shaky. It's not delivering on its promises and the world seems to be a really busy, anxious, exhausted place. And as followers of Jesus, we've been shown a different way and we're often very shaped by the world we live in. But we have, as the good witch said to Dorothy, the power to get back to Kansas. There are ancient paths that will help us practice the presence of God in our lives every day. And those moments of silence and solitude are just sheer grace. This is not a legalistic practice. This is a, this is a time where we can encounter the grace and the love of God, who says over us, like he said over Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved, 
in whom I am pleased. And that is the first and last word that he speaks over us. I'm going to do it. We've got some time. I figured like it would be ridiculous to speak for half an hour on silence. So, for eight minutes, we're going to be silent and practice this right now. I'm going to ask Mark to put up a video that's going to guide us. Um, it's a video that's quiet. It's got, some, it's got some guidance on it. But I want you to sit up straight in your chair. Um, if you can. Just, I'd love you to put your back against the back of the chair. And I want you to place your two feet on the ground. And I want you to take three really deep breaths. Breathe in and breathe out. Feel your feet on the ground. Feel yourself sitting in the chair. Feel the weight of your body in the chair. Present. And let's just enjoy this presence. Or the, sorry, let's just enjoy this silence. <laughs> 